Right, we're in, lovely people. Welcome back to the Big Feed Up HQ podcast. Now, before I get started, let's give you a little bit of information about 33 Fuel because they help me keep the lights on with this show. 33 Fuel produce natural and powerful sports nutrition products. No messing around. I've left the link to their website in the show notes. Use Matt10 for 10% off your first order. Now, they produce bars, carbohydrate-rich bars, protein-rich bars, really useful portable eats. I use them on my bimbles. They produce chia seed energy gels. So you just bang in the water, shake, take it on the go. They produce protein powders and things like that too. Everything's whole food-based everything's plant-based everything's gluten-free and dairy-free so uh, James and Warren and Erica are fantastic people and if you reach out they'll definitely help you too so if you're into endurance exercise if you want a little bit more of a protein hit during the day then hit them up now let's get over to talk a little bit about my guest for this upcoming show the person I'm about to speak to is someone that I follow And I can't wait for you guys to cleave some nutritional nuggets from this chap. His name is Dr. Mark Bubbs, and he is the performance nutrition lead for Canada Basketball. Okay, and he's also recently written a book called Peak. So if you're interested in your sports nutrition, your performance nutrition, you have to get a copy of this book. He's not paying me to say this. It is such a useful oh, like resource, really easy to read. He's broken loads of things down. We're talking sections on sleep and circadian rhythm, the athlete microbiome, blood sugar and longevity, physique nutrition, endurance nutrition, team sports, periodized recovery, athlete immunity, athlete monitoring, recovering strategies. And then into the supercharged section, brain health and concussions, really interesting stuff, emotion and mindset, and then leadership and great coaching. So you have to get involved in this. And if you don't want to buy the book, because obviously you don't have to, really hope you enjoy the show. I'm going to try and cover a few things around blood sugar and also a little bit around circadian rhythm with Mark and then talk to him a little bit about his journey because I know there's some sports nutritionists listening, personal trainers listening, people at different stages in their career. So it's always good to get someone on who's experienced, who knows about what being self-employed is all about, someone that works with athletes, but then general real pop too. So without further ado, Let's have a listen to Dr. Mark Bubbs. Mark, welcome to the show. Cheers, I appreciate you taking the time to have me on. Now, really looking forward to this and yeah, keen to pick up some nutrition knowledge bombs and uh, I listen to your podcast a lot, so I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear some Terrific. of the phrases that, that you say in your podcast and then hopefully you can say it in mine too, so that'll be fun. Nice, nice. But yeah, so I think just straight off the bat, Mark, why don't you just give everyone a little bit of background? I've obviously spoken a little bit about your book and I'll I'll link to everything there in the show notes. But it'd be really good just to let the listeners know um, what you get up to and and how you got into being a performance nutritionist. Yeah, great question, Matt. I mean, I think I definitely took the circuitous route to becoming a performance nutritionist. I, you know, like most people in the field, 
played a lot of sports growing up and was really active and athletic and thought, okay, how do I, you know, how can I pursue this in, in a profession? And doing my undergraduate studies at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, you know, I was thinking, do I want to go into chiropractic, which, you know, in North America has a strong foothold in sport. And I, you know, so I was mulling that over a little bit. And then I started to really get interested in the nutrition side of things and how that could, you know, through a few health challenges of my own and issues around immunity and a few things, you know, I'd gotten some nutrition advice and it was like, you know, flipping a switch. I mean, all of a sudden I felt fantastic. And I thought to myself, you know, this has got a real, this is going back 20 years ago now. And, you know, this is, this is crucial for health. You know, I mean, what, in terms of medicine, I thought this is what every GP I'm sure is using in their practice. And of course, at that time, you know, shadowing and observing and doing the pre-med studies, you know, it's, it's unfortunately a bit like today where there's very short visits, 15 minutes, you know, and then docs, GPs have a tough task to be able to, to have to diagnose people and make sure they're not having any, anything major, major pathologies that are taking root, but also trying to add preventative measures. And so basically there wasn't a lot of nutrition or exercise at, at that point. So like most undergrads, if you didn't know what you wanted to do, then you just took a few years off, right? So I took a few years off, traveled, worked abroad, and then ended up, you know, working as a trainer, personal trainer, uh, Poliquin Performance Center in, in Toronto. And for me, that started this idea of, you know, exercise, nutrition, and how it could impact health. And through that, I stumbled on, you know, a colleague of mine now who's our ISD lead at Canada Basketball, Sam Gibbs, and started doing some work with our younger athletes at Canada Basketball on the on the S&C side, just, you know, um, some technical work and, and uh, movement, etc. And, and from that, you know, the nutrition came on board, and, and, and that's how I ended up being, you know, part of the team as a performance nutritionist. And I tell you that, you know, the topic which we'll discuss here today around just human health, athlete health, that was a that was a big entry into the being able to work for kind of the basketball because. You know, in some of these high skill sports, it's more about how do we keep these players on the on the field, on the court. Um, you know, how do we keep them from catching colds and flus? How do we keep them healthy through the season? So, so that was pretty refreshing to see that that was also the mentality for Canada basketball back then as well. Mm. Yeah, and I agree. And I think often, you know, pe- people want nuggets around how to train, how to eat. But like you said, if you're not well, and obviously most people that listen to this that work for a living and then they're training and they're eating on the side. If, if you're not well, obviously, then, you know, you're not going to deliver the stimulus you want. You're not going to be able to show up to the gym or the sports field or you might not have the energy to, to cook from scratch. So I think that's, you know, that's why I like to follow your approach, because, you you know, you do get into the, the weeds, so to speak, and look at those small variable benefits. But then it's also that overarching, OK, you know, let's let's be well, uh, let's nourish from the inside out. Let's think about gut health. Let's think about about availability of energy and then obviously take things from there absolutely i mean it's uh it is amazing you know if you don't sleep enough all of a sudden it impacts how you think and your food choices um you know stress emotional stress you know is a big one now for in high performance with snc and and performance staff of those other 22 hours when the athletes aren't with the team mm. you know those are having a big impact and, and all those things trickle in and interweave um you know like loops connecting on each other and, and yeah they absolutely impact the food choices you make how you feel and then of course health mm-hmm. so i know obviously this this would take up a, a large amount of time if you went into it in detail but in terms of the project around the book 
how how did that first kind of manifest in your mind and then uh, obviously your 20 years of experience went into it but were there any people close to you that you consulted um obviously you know as part of your profession you're you're reading on a daily basis you've got your foot in the evidence-based world but how did you start to put all of that together because uh, yeah when people obviously do listen to this and if they do pick up peak or they listen to it you know in terms of the the audio side there's a lot that goes into it mate there is a lot that goes into it and yeah it was uh it was a great project to be able to put your thoughts on paper and to and to really you know try to get the fundamentals the pillars down and, and for me the, the goal was to really connect folks with a lot of the you know the experts in the different domains that are truly on the front lines and working with the best of the best athletes and you know i think especially in, in north america you know, through athletic therapists, through the SNC, uh, even physios, you know, there's a lot of different people delivering, you know, nutrition advice, even at very high to the highest levels. And so I think some of these fundamentals sometimes, um, you know, get missed or not fully tapped. And so, you know, that notion of, of athlete health, you know, that human first approach, if you will, is something that's definitely garnered a lot of traction across all major sports now trying to keep athletes healthy and, you know, research showing that particularly endurance athletes that, you know, frequent illness is incompatible with elite performance. You know, if you're, if you're just run down and sick all the time, you simply can't show up to train enough to keep up with the competition. And so that's been refreshing to see because again, for me as an athlete a long time ago, that was one of the areas that was, that I struggled with. So it's a, you know, to be able to see that nutrition and things like sleep and stress can really impact that has been tremendous. And, you know, in the book, we then dive into fueling around, you know, whether it's body composition, team sports, endurance sport. I think they are really different animals. You know, it's 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 really interesting when you wear the hat of, let's say, a, a bodybuilder or a, a researcher who's into bodybuilding and the, the type of nutrition strategy you might deliver and how you might deliver that to that individual, you know, versus somebody who plays a team sport, you know, like a highly skill-based like basketball or, you know, what I would call soccer, apologies, football. Um you know, those sports might need a different, depending on the individual in front of you, method of delivering that information to that player, um, that athlete. And I think that's that's where the really interesting part, and I know, Matt, you work with, the, you know, in the, in the medical side as well. And so, you know, trying to figure out the person in front of you, what resonates with them, how do they receive information best and what motivates them? Because at the end of the day, you can have the best laid plan, but if your client or your athlete's not going to do it, then... You know what good is it and so i think that's you know that's a big part of the equation really is trying to figure out how to get that athlete or that client to be able to take on board you know the advice you're giving mm-hmm. yeah and if we and if we kind of dive into one of the sections because when when people look at the chapters and they see uh, the blood sugar and longevity i think obviously you know one of the reasons why i wanted to get you on because this this is a this is definitely a chapter that that I went to first because obviously with the clear headings you know what am I most interested in, and the thing that I wanted to get your take on was was definitely this chapter and I think maybe just to introduce to the listeners that 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 title even in itself you know blood sugar and longevity why should someone listening to this uh you know be interested in uh what that is all about and then obviously um just keen to then know a little bit around how can someone measure this and then obviously after that I'll ask you a few questions around 
um you know what i suppose nutrition and lifestyle things to think about and and then obviously around ranges i know there's a lot in terms of um markers and and it's quite contentious but yeah it'd be really good to, to to just get you to go through a little bit of that chapter really and let people know yeah, you know, I think when people, athletes, general population, you know, you get to 30, all of a sudden you start feeling some aches and niggles and things that didn't crop up before. You can't just rock up to the gym and, and you know, hit the session like you used to. And then all of a sudden you get to 40 and, and now the, the prehab and the warm-up is taking a heck of a lot longer. Um, you maybe don't feel as indestructible as you used to. And this notion of health span and lifespan starts to crop up. And we, we talk a lot about lifespan in, in, uh, you know, in medicine and the general population but effectively that's how many years you're living but unfortunately you know as, as you're well aware Matt those last 10 years of most people's lives are lived in a lot of discomfort pain uh, disability you know loss of independence and so the idea of health span is really extending the quality of those years and so you know it's it's, it's actually interesting you know you go back 200 years in London and the average life expectancy was 38 or 39 you know, so we've, we've come a long way in a couple hundred years. And I think, you know, for then this, you know, for athletes as well, we see now, obviously, careers are much longer than they used to be. You know, you get Roger Federer's at 37 winning majors, which, mm. you know, in my generation was unheard of. And so for athletes, the idea of longevity is extending that career well into your 30s to get more contracts and, and be able to, to achieve even more. And I think for the rest of us in the general population, it's this idea of we can continue to perform well and feel well, well into our 60s 70s 80s and really mitigate that you know that decline and have it come sort of steeper than the longer drawn out you know five to ten years where you know again unfortunately we see things like you know dementias alzheimer's on the risk um, you know one simple fall or hip fracture can really start to derail someone's independence as they get older so this idea of how do we then you know how can we start to flag these things and, and this is where in the book and some of the research around you know, fasting glucose as a, as a marker is just one snapshot in time, but we see some pretty interesting observational studies where, you know, going over 22 years where, you know, if your fasting glucose is above 5.6 millimoles per liter, well, we see about a 40% increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Of course, that's association, but as we move those out, you know, the Whitehall study is a 33-year-long study, and there, you, you know, the higher the fasting glucose, the greater the likelihood of cardiovascular events, and so... We obviously more than that is just a metric, but it's a it's a talking point. Mm-hmm. Whether it's whether it's your athlete, whether it's the client in front of you in the general <laughs> practice, when we start to see some of these metrics in places that are moving towards, you know, outside the normal range, or that's that's a a moment to have a conversation and say, okay, let's dig into how they're fueling and are they exercising and how much are they sleeping and all these types of questions. Mm, definitely and i think most people listen to this have you know they've probably had a checkup before or they've gone for a blood test and you know they haven't eaten and they've had uh, a kind of fasted level um you know they might not be aware of the parameters and things but obviously that's something i can put in in show notes and things like that and obviously link to your book but the other thing that's quite interesting now are these uh these monitors you know these these wearables i know most of the time especially in you know the setting i might see in in these medical centers and yourself you know people that have uh type 2 diabetes or a pre-diabetic you know they're they're then issued <clears throat> one of these things um but i think you know obviously it's not something that everyone's going to be wearing but that concept of 
seeing blood sugar measurements at real time is interesting because obviously what you allude to in the book is um you know we're generally taught if you're eating something that whole food based low gi so it's that kind of uh you know may take longer to digest and have more of a favorable blood sugar response people have heard of that it's actually seen now that you know some people wearing these monitors may may not have uh, a favorable response compared to other people so yeah it'd be good to get your take on that really yeah i mean that's a fascinating uh, research you know i believe it was about 2015 uh dr zibi's group in, uh, in israel performed a very large study 800 people served them over 48,000 meals and we're comparing you know after hooking them up to this continuous glucose monitors right a little device that you you prick into the back of your arm you know they wanted to see what kind of reactions the blood glucose re- responses they would have to meals and of course this notion of glycemic index if you eat a cookie and i eat a cookie we should have a similar glucose response if i eat an apple and you eat an apple we should have a similarly lower response and you know of course in the study they see these market differences between individuals to exactly the same meals and so this is the one area where you know in medicine you're typically going to use fasting glucose and HA1C which is a measure that most people will get run by their GP it's effectively about a you know approximately a three-month average of your of your blood glucose and whilst these are generally good screening metrics it does leave out an important area which is how people actually respond to a you know, a bolus or a challenge in terms of what they eat and postprandially after that meal, you know, what does that, that glucose response look like? And that's difficult to get in a, in a lab setting or excuse me, in a clinical setting because, you know, to have someone come in for an oral glucose tolerance test, which is basically getting your blood drawn, take a you know, 75, 80 gram bolus of, of glucose and then come back two hours later for another blood draw, you know, unless you're really close to being diabetic most people aren't going to be signing up for that you know um, too quickly and so the cgm devices have really been novel in the sense that people can now get a glimpse into some of these responses that that sort of third piece really in those three metrics between fasting glucose a1c and of course response to meals and and this is where again you see some pretty highly um different responses to exactly the same meals and you know, even amongst athletes, and, you know, some of our athletes at Canada Basketball have exhibited this phenomenon where, you know, things look good on paper and those glucose and A1Cs, but there are symptoms of fatigue more pronounced than you would expect. There's symptoms of poor recovery or poor immunity, even things like, you know, body composition not being where you'd expect it to be. And, and when you start digging a little deeper and doing some detective work, you, you you know, we found that, uh, and I found with other clients, that you start to see some different responses than you would expect to certain meals. And so I think that's, you know, pretty interesting for folks. It is a little bit cost prohibitive at the moment for some people because it's not, mm. it's not inexpensive. But, um, you know, if people are exhibiting symptoms or, or issues around some of those factors, then it's definitely something worth considering. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for a, for a takeaway for someone that's obviously listening to this they're not going to get a monitor you know we're obviously not recommending that i think if we break things down into you know the total the type and the timing those three t's that that we can kind of go through there i'd be keen to get your take on 
you know the 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 notion of the of this uh, timing through the day um from from what you've read or you know your opinion on some of this uh, time restricted feeding or intermittent time you know restricted feeding shortening that window there's 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 been some interesting research around that and um yeah that that kind of concept gives someone uh, a bit more of an ability to to make a bit of a change because obviously it doesn't really require any um preparation there's no specialist food involved so that's that's an interesting tool to probably start to look at isn't it yeah and i think the first question you know when someone's in front of you is always what's their goal Mm. what are they trying to achieve because i think sometimes with particularly athletes coming in now they're not immune to social media and what's popular and you know whether it's keto or intermittent fasting or whatever it might be it's always important to to emphasize that these are all strategies, you know, and if we can, if we can operate by the principles of how these, all these strategies work, then we can, we can achieve the, the goal that the person wants to achieve. And so, you know, to answer your question for the general population, you know, again, you go back one generation, people used to just eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner and not really snack in between, you know, it was, mm. you know, before the 1970s, it was, uh, you know, wait for your dinner and, there was really like a 12-hour window is what people were really operating on. Mm. And of course, over the decades and generations, as you know, one snack was kind of introduced as healthy and then two snacks as sort of the norm, um, you know, we find ourselves eating all day. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that in clinic. You ask somebody when their first bite of food is and it's six or seven in the morning. Mm. And most people are snacking on something when they're watching, you know, Game of Thrones or Peaky Blinders at the end of the night on the couch. And so that's, 10 or 10 30 or 11 o'clock at night and so you know we're eating for 18 hours a day mm. now a lot of people and so i think you know as you mentioned as a strategy it can be quite nice to just simply cap the time that people can eat because typically we tend to get a reduction in caloric intake just by doing that right um and so it's nice to be able to achieve that without having to give too many directives for folks to try to you know i'm always trying to give as little um directives as I can to get the maximum benefit when especially when working with the general population you know in order to get that compliance and to get a bit of progress and momentum going and so you know I think intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding can be a really nice strategy for a lot of people Uh, from there you know working with different windows can be really beneficial and a lot of my clients struggle with breakfast you know there's a lot of bad options at breakfast and so simply eliminating breakfast altogether and and doing more of an intermittent fasting protocol or starting that first meal around 11 o'clock can be highly beneficial simply because they avoid a lot of those problem foods. And you know, I recently had Javier Gonzalez on my podcast not too long ago and his, him and his team's research on breakfast versus no breakfast. And of course, you know, we see that one is not necessarily better than the other, but, um, you know, it comes down to what the client will do and what's, what's easiest to fit into their pattern. And so, I think it's great to have as a tool. I think where it can get a little bit out of context is when we start talking about, you know, athletes and higher level athletes mm. and the idea of, of restricting these windows. I think that's a moment when you definitely have to come back to this idea of, you know, what is the goal? What are you trying to achieve? Uh, because sometimes that can get lost through just wanting to do, you know, for the athlete wanting to do something novel, you know, something that their friend or, or teammates doing. Mm, definitely definitely no and I think it's that notion of fueling for the work required and general people I speak to 
you know, on training days, as I'd call them, and non-training days, it's just making them be aware of that. And like you said, diving into the, the total type and timing, and then the timing might change to, to help them fuel or help them recover. And even though that sounds quite intense, you know, it's just, you might just be using the gym or you might just be going for a run. You know, it's it's definitely important for, for energy levels and, um, yeah, just to make sure that you're you're not missing too much because then, you know, you may be hungry on other days. So, yeah, I think you're totally right around around the goal. That's that's absolutely key. And I think the, the other thing I wanted to ask you um, is, is this concept of uh, regular uh, kind of timings of meals around, um, you know, working and being consistent and supporting your circadian rhythm. So, you know, your body's natural clock and. Uh, say someone eating, choosing to eat at, I don't know, 10 or 11 mid-morning, for example, you know, two or three in the afternoon or something, late lunch, and then they might be having uh, dinner around six or seven or, you know, however people want to do that. In in, in your experience or, or with some of the research you've, you've obviously done into the book, what what do you think of, of the uh, consistent Yes, just use the word, the term, you know, feeding times, if if that mm-hmm. makes sense. You know, does that does that play a part? Because obviously we talked a little bit about the fasting and the and the window, but then within that, you know, do you think people um should then obviously stick to the window but then keep a same uh eating time within that, or can that vary? Like what what would you kind of say around that? Yeah, I think that's definitely one where both in athletes and the general population, I think people tend to do best when there's some regularity with their eating pattern, you know, regardless if that's in a restricted eating window or not. If you start to eat at irregular times, you know, day in, day out, what I've noticed is people will then start to, you know, snack more or succumb to cravings and then, and consume foods that are not typically used to consuming. And so, I think that's a that's a great point for even people who are deciding to to do a bit of time restricted feeding. You know, try to be somewhat consistent with your timings. You know, whether it's ten or eleven, two or three, five or six for dinner. You know, that's a great way to maintain consistency not only with the hunger cues that you're getting, which is a big part of it. You know, I think people tend to mistake you know the hunger cues that they're getting. I mean, it's the level of sort of panic that some people might get into where we're reaching for sugars and mm. reaching for snacks when, you know, even if you're 10% body fat, you've got about 30,000 calories of energy. I mean, you could run, you know, five, eight, ten 10 marathons without any fuel. And yet people struggle between breakfast and lunch, just sitting at their desk. And so I think this is where either infrequent eating, so eating at random times can lead to more, this sort of unconscious snacking or if you're someone who's just a who's used to constantly snacking through the day you're literally starting to program in these these patterns and you know your brain is is looking for that snack mid-morning or mid-afternoon and really you know you don't need fuel you know your body has enough fuel on board to get you through the day but uh, you've sort of fallen into this pattern Mm -hmm. so i think like you said in summary there it's 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 obviously being aware of of uh you know, your eating window, if, if you're listening to this and it's something you've never thought about before, you know, that's definitely a useful tool. And then obviously the, the regularity of meals. And I think you nailed it on the head. You know, we could we could debate, I think, from a, 
a blood sugar standpoint and uh you know and a calorie standpoint you know when and where people should put things in but like you said it's all about habit formation it's all about hunger cues and i think it's it's very individual and it's it's tough to give a you know a complete black and white answer there isn't it in terms of timings and um certain amounts of food because obviously unless someone's wearing a monitor or you know they're, they're having regular checkups which the average person doesn't do you know we're not going to get that feedback all the time yeah i mean in terms of whether it's training or nutrition i mean consistency is is really king right so whatever strategy you're going to use you know trying to ensure that over the course of 12 months you can stick to it you know and i think that's oftentimes where again general public or, or athlete want to dive in with both you know dive in head first and then all this enthusiasm for the first two or four weeks of a program but we've got to maintain this enthusiasm and this eating pattern for the whole year to really make progress and so you know that's where maybe as practitioners certain people will have you know, preferences or biases towards one way or the other. You know, I think as long as you're achieving that outcome and you're being able to achieve that outcome through a method, a strategy that resonates with that client, because ultimately when they go off on their own into the real world, you want them to be able to stick to it in the long run mm. um, and to be able to develop those skills so that they can navigate the challenges at some point themselves rather than always having to rely on the, the doctor or practitioner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Oh, I totally agree. And it's just it's it's really good to get your insights. Obviously, after reading all the in-depth information in your book, it's it's obviously just good to get a decent overview from yourself. And I think it just obviously shows the wealth of your experience because you're always obviously thinking, you know, what does the individual want out of this, and how can they achieve things? How can they reduce dietary fatigue? How can they increase, you know, a consistent approach? So you know, that's I think that's really really useful. Um, mate, before before we wrap up, the the other section I'm keen to get uh, your take on was the the monitoring and the recovery strategies. So again, I know it's 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 a it's a decent part in the book, but I think it'd be cool to to hear just some some of your either favourite bits of kit or if someone's listening to this, you know, they're they're recreation athlete or someone you know takes their training and things quite seriously. From all your research, you know what what would you recommend someone kind of has a look at? Obviously, you know, you don't have to name brands and things like that. Um, but yeah, just be cool to get your take on some of these uh, some of these bits of kit or if you think people should just generally have daily check-ins and, you know, even just write notes about themselves, you know, what would you recommend there? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating area. You know, the recovery science has really blown up in the last decade and, you know, the things that are happening at the highest level in terms of, you know, technology and investment in, in people and technology is, is pretty remarkable. And I think for some of that in the general population, <coughs> sorry here, Matt, I'm just going to have to grab some water. No, no, do it, mate. A little pause. No, no, it's fine. One, one sec. He's held out well, lovely people. Before we got on the call, Mark was talking about how he's, uh, yeah, he's got his own challenges around his immune system due to uh, certain young family members going down. So, yeah, it's all good. Hopefully, when he's got his water and uh, he's he's ready and back in action, we can we continue to keep rolling. 
How you doing, mate? Sorry, I just had to pop into the kitchen there. No, no, it's fine. I'm struggling here a little bit. I've got the old, uh, got the flu coming in, I think, here, but we're all good there. A little bit of water. All set. You've held out, you know. You've held out for for almost thirty minutes, and I, and and I know you. I know you're battling I your flu. Get through that little tickle in the throat there. When yeah, it me, so, uh... mate, it's all good. It's all good. But yeah, well, you know, look. I think yeah, just just be keen to keen to get your take on a few of those, and you know, we can we can always circle back and keen to grab you, you know, some more time on a later episode as well. So um, oh, no, yeah. Sure. I mean, I'm happy to answer that question there. I'll just uh, the last one around was it the recovery methods, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, just just some of the things that are interesting uh, around, you know, the the monitoring side or the recovery methods, and and through your research, what what you think people should have a bit of a look at, or maybe you know what's on the market or a certain area that you think is going to be, you know, quite important o- over over the next few years. Yeah, again, I think it's a really remarkable area at the moment in terms of the science of recovery over the last decade has exploded and. It's amazing what folks are doing at the highest level, and it's also amazing at what uh, you know everyone else and us and the general public can get our hands on. And I think for endurance athletes, you know, in the book we talk a lot about uh, endurance sport and the use of HRV. You know, the work of Dr. Daniel Plews and Prof. Larson, and, and how we can start to be able to you know use HRV to inform some of the training decisions from an endurance standpoint. But of course, they give some great tips and suggestions there around really making sure you're collecting for quite a bit of time before making any real decisions because you do need, you know, a couple of months worth of, of data to really be able to get a handle on what it's trying to tell you. And of course I interviewed Dr. Andrew Flat as well uh, in the book around sort of team sports and, and track and field, you know, sprinters and whatnot, and the use of HRV. And, and that's where things get a little bit more gray in terms of what it's telling you. And so mm. I think that can be really interesting. I think that's one where, you know, the use of HRV, can be terrific when it's alongside a practitioner as well who can help, you know, parse out the information. Mm. And then, you know, from, from talking with all the various performance staffs, you know, a simple daily wellness questionnaire is still, you know, pound for pound pretty phenomenal in terms of what it can tell you. So, you know, literally scale of one to five, you know, five or six simple questions around fatigue, muscle soreness, sleep, things like that mm. to give you a wealth of information. And those are, pretty easy to collect for most people, you know, especially if they're, you know, maybe weighing in a certain amount of days a week for the practitioner. If it's a weight loss type client or body composition, takes less than 60 seconds. And now all of a sudden you can really get some input on, on what's going on in a client's life. Because oftentimes, even when you have a short Q and a, you know, some things are often left to the side. If you don't poke and prod a little bit deeper. And sometimes that daily wellness questionnaire can be a way for, the practitioner, especially if you're dealing with a lot of clients or remote clients, to be able to pick up on things. You know, if you start seeing a lot of, you know, ones and twos on sleep, then all of a sudden the conversation might shift over there and you can start to pick apart and, and find out if there is a, you know, a red flag or a roadblock there that you need to uh, to address. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, like you said there, when people maybe pick up wearables and they're, they're looking at their heart rate and their heart rate variability over, you know, a, a few nights sleep and then they might get a kind of average marker. I think it's a good takeaway for you to say, look, you know, you definitely need to pick up weeks, if not months of, of uh, patterns before, you know, getting too bogged down in, you know, maybe the odd daily change and things. So, no, I'm, re- I'm really glad you said that because I think I, I, I do get asked that quite a lot and especially people now, um, you know, using these things. It's... Uh, 
is 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 still uh, an an unknown unknown as you'd call it. So it's uh, yeah, that's 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 really good. Yeah, for sure, and it's it's always amazing that the clients who are most key on it tend to I find overinterpret, and some of our clients who almost don't gravitate towards it are sometimes the ones that might need it the most in terms of helping to inform them. So yeah, yeah find, and finding that balance is, is pretty uh, is pretty key. Cool, cool. Well, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you get back to your to your slippers and your lemsip, and you need to you need to rest your voice. So I think you know before we go, just just let people know how they can stay in touch with you, um, or how they can follow what you do. And um, yeah, thanks so much for your time this evening. It's been great. Matt, listen, appreciate you carving out some time. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, people can keep touch on social media at Dr. Bubs. They can uh, check out the website, drbubs.com, and everything related to the book, which is peak, uh, is at athleteevolution.org. Cool. Okay, lovely people. Again, look, thanks so much for listening. Really enjoying doing this podcast. We're climbing towards 15,000 listens, so it's you know it's a good little bit of a project for me it's something that i really enjoy and you know bringing on guests like mark today it's uh, it's yeah it's it's an absolute pleasure to do it and um i'll learn so much and continue to listen share if you enjoy it and yeah speak to you soon